In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Nackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. On this episode of Notably Disney, I am excited to bring back guest Didier Getz. He is an author, a historian, a researcher, someone who knows about really all facets of the Walt Disney Company, and over many years has been curating those insights into a variety of popular books, including the They Drew As They Pleased series, the Walt's People series, and so much more. It's He's just a treasure trove of knowledge. He has the Ultimate Disney Books Network, which uh, catalogs all the great titles that are Disney-related that have come out over the years. And uh, he's a storyteller um, at, his, at his heart. Uh, and you'll see that come through during our interview. And today we talk about his new release, The Origins of Walt Disney's True Life Adventures. It's a topic that, as you'll hear, has been relatively undiscovered. And, uh, and he's been able to shed a lot of new insights into this chapter of Disney history that, um, that hasn't gotten its attention. You will notice that the audio quality um, perhaps isn't as sharp as it usually is uh, on the podcast due to some technical issues that we experience, but we hope that you uh, can still hear everything clearly, that you benefit from gleaning this conversation, and that you feel inspired to pick up a copy of Didier's newest title. So enjoy my conversation with Didier Yes. Well, Didier, it is great to have you back on Notably Disney. I know we talked about two years ago, uh, around the time of the release of the last edition of the They Do As They Please series. Um, and anyone who knows you recognizes that you have many projects brewing at once, in addition to, to running the Ultimate Disney Books Network. Um, you're certainly a very key author in the Disney history landscape. And I'm really excited to talk with you about True Life Adventures, the origins of Walt Disney's True Life Adventures, um, which you hinted at a little bit last time when you came on the show. But I'm interested in understanding what inspired you to explore this rarely covered topic. Well, Greg, it's an absolute pleasure to be back on the show. And, and to give you a sense of how this all started, um, 
it, it's interesting because some project I start by knowing that I'm going to research this specific topic or that specific topic. In the case of the origins of the True Life Adventures, that's not really what happened. What, what happened is over the years, I started locating collections of really interesting Disney documents. Uh, one of them was the collection of the papers of the artist Holling C. Holling, uh, who was um, a wonderful artist for uh, children's books who at some point worked for Disney for a few years in the 1930s. And within those papers, there were lots of things that I really didn't understand. I didn't understand how it connected with the Disney history that I knew. Uh, it didn't, I, I didn't understand where those projects fit in. I, and I knew those were Disney projects, but I really had no context for those projects. In parallel to that, what was happening is that when I was researching uh, the series they drew as they pleased, The Hidden Art of Disney, uh, I was looking at the abandoned projects at the Animation Research Library. And I stumbled there upon quite a few storyboards um, for true life adventures like projects that I had never heard anything about. And so once again, I was like, how does this all fit in? What are those projects? What are they doing here? When were they produced? And so on and so forth. And so that that was another thread that that was um, that I was seeing and that I didn't really understand. And then in parallel to all of that, uh, for years and years and years, I've been uh, gathering material, uh, autobiographies, memoirs, and uh, correspondence and so on from the artists who uh, uh, were working on the True Life Adventures uh, throughout the 1940s and 1950s. Um, and, and I knew that at some point I wanted to research the, the subject of the True Life Adventures in more details or help um, another historian do that because it's it's a subject that's very much untapped. Um, and at some point, uh, after gathering so many of those documents, I realized, oh, now I'm starting to see what the story is, and it's utterly fascinating. And it's story, and it's a story that I've never read before, never heard before. And 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 obviously, what I realized is, obviously, I've never read about it or heard about it before because nothing had been written about that, that subject. Um, and, and so I started thinking, okay, well, how do I tell th this story? Um, is it gonna be a book about the true life adventures? Well, no, not quite. Um, I realized uh, when I was uh, starting to, uh, uh, to structure the project that it would become a book about the origins of the true life adventures. What is the story uh, between the, the moment where Walt sends um, one of his artists with one of his friends to the forest of Maine to research Bambi in 1938 to the moment where Sea Lion uh, is released in 1948. So what happens during those 10 years uh, at the Disney studio uh, that, 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 that leads to the release of, of Sea Lion. And I'll add one last thing, which is when I started trying to understand how has this story or part of this story been told uh, in, in the past uh, um, when it comes to the origins of Seal Island itself, uh, I realized that the story had almost always been told in the, in the, uh, in the following way, which is that um, Al, the cinematographer Al Milot meets Walt in Alaska and Walt says, oh, you're a great cinematographer, I want to hire you to, uh, to film stuff in Alaska. 
And Al says, okay, what can I start? Walt says, well, all sorts of stuff. Uh, and I start shooting and, and says Al, and I send back some footage to Walt. And Walt looks at the footage and says, well, um, actually send me more footage of seals. And that's how Seal Island uh, um, was developed and got to the screen. And, and so when I started looking at all of the documentation that had accumulated, I realized this is a beautiful, really nice story. Uh, but it's a fairy tale. Uh, there's nothing in there, or there's only a very uh, small kernel of truth. Uh, Walt didn't meet Al in Alaska. Um, Walt uh, really didn't ask Al to uh, shoot everything he wanted. Uh, there, there was uh, there was some guidance right from the start, and Walt didn't tell him shoot more seals while uh, Al and his wife Elma were in Alaska. That happened much, much later uh, that, that the focus uh, uh, was put on, on the seals. Uh, so, so none of that story was true. And, and the real story is a million times more interesting, a million times more fascinating, a million times more detailed. I, I appreciate all that context. And what really came across very clearly in, in reading your book is that this series partially came out of the studio trying to reinvent itself during World War II in terms of uh, many more educational projects and not just going for the traditional animated feature, but of course all the package films and other types of ventures. Could you talk about how the True Life Adventures series kind of became folded into that period of experimentation in terms of what the Walt Disney Studios could produce? Yes, absolutely. So it, it starts, I mean, the story starts even before the war. It starts in 1938 with that research trip to Maine uh, that uh, um, Walt sends one of his artists, Jack Day, to um, to Maine to, to research really the background for, for Bambi and, and to uh, shoot uh, photographs for inspiration for his artists. And uh, uh, Jake and, and one of his friends uh, go to Maine for um, a few months and, and, and shoot quite a few, few photos for, for reference. And one of the things that I, uh, that I discovered during my research were the, uh, the diaries of, of um, Jake Day's friend uh, who was there with him. And so that, that was quite fascinating because it was the first time we had a first-hand account of, the, of that trip. Um, and that's where Walt started establishing some of the methodology with, with that those two people uh, on the ground um, uh, shooting, or in, in this case, uh, photographing uh, stuff for the studio. Now, what happens next is the, the Walt Disney Studios enter World War II, uh, of course, like the rest of the country. And uh, when they do that, a lot of the projects that they produce are educational projects mostly educational for, for the troops, uh, really, but also some for a larger audience, like uh, the new spirit uh, to convince people to pay their, their taxes, for example. Um, and then little by little, Waltz realizes, well, you know what? Um, if we can do those educational projects for the troops, if we can do those educational projects for the larger audience, if we can do those educational projects like the Amazon Awakens to... Uh, um, to talk about South America and so on and so forth. And maybe there is a lot more that we can produce uh, and that can be valid after the war, because obviously Walt during World War II is thinking, how do I reinvent myself uh, for peacetime? Uh, and so um, so he starts exploring 
quite a few projects that are linked to education uh, that he's thinking about distributing uh, through the non-theatrical uh, circuits um, after the while, meaning through schools, uh, through churches, uh, through all sorts of places where uh, they have personal projectiles. Um, and and so um, so he looks in a million directions. And so he's, he's really tasking some of these artists like uh, Leo Thielen and, and uh, Holling, C. Holling uh, to explore all of those ideas. Uh, and they go from uh, the story of man that, that Joe Grant and DQ may start developing to uh, the story of music, uh, which I'm going to explore in a lot more details in, uh, in the next volume in, in the series, um, to quite a few other projects about um, um, economics, uh, about nature, um, and, and, and more and more and more about the human body and, and so on and so forth. And then in parallel to that, he's also, uh, producing things for the industry, uh, for, um, um, GE, for, um, uh, all sorts of companies that are interested in, uh, in, in showcasing their brands, um, in a more fun way and, and not through commercials, but really, uh, through educational films. I mean, uh, at some point he even produces a, a, a film called The Story of Menstruation, believe it or not. Um, uh, bathing time with baby and, and more and more and more. And so you have all of those real small nuggets uh, that really had not been discussed um, almost at all or very much before. And I, I really wanted to reconstruct that, 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 that story of all of those educational projects, the, the ones that made it to screen and the ones that did not, uh, that were being developed during World War II. And, and again, thanks to the access to the Holding C. Holding paper, and, and thanks to a lot of documents uh, that are stored at the Disney archives, including one uh, that Kevin Curran, uh, the archivist from the from the Walt Disney Archive, found about two weeks before I was supposed to wrap up my text, and that proved to be a cornerstone of, of the, uh, the the whole chapter. Um, um, including that uh, allowed me to really write the most in-depth chapter about uh, educational projects that Disney during World War II. But then at the end of that, during towards the end of World War II, Walt is really, really thinking, okay, what do I do next? What, what, what's really interesting out of all of those educational projects? Which ones uh, do we put on the, the drawing boards? Which one do we move forward with? And, and one of them is uh, that series of... Um, uh, of, of educational uh, shorts or educational uh, um, featurettes about nature. And, uh, and at the same time, around the time where I've been thinking about that, there is an article in the Riddles Digest that is being released about Alaska being the new frontier. And so, you know, the way uh, Walt's mind works, uh, he puts uh, one and one together and uh, that becomes five. And so um, he... Uh, um, he basically says, okay, Alaska is a very interesting uh, topic. Uh, let's see how we do that. Uh, and so that's in 1945 that he starts thinking uh, very seriously about that. And so um, he doesn't go to Alaska at that point. He doesn't meet Alan and Romilat in Alaska. But what he says is he contacts his uh, story research department and the, the team there, and he says, well, finding more information about Alaska. And while you're doing that, uh, also look into who could um, who could help us 
um, create a, a film about, about Alaska, where the cinematograph cells that we could employ to, to do that. Uh, and so uh, the research department, and especially a person called Wanda Elwin, uh, Elwin in the research department, sends letters to lots and lots of places in Alaska, including uh, uh, one magazine in Alaska and the editor-in-chief of that magazine and says, who do you recommend? And that editor-in-chief said, well, there's this couple, uh, Al and Al Manilot, uh, they're from the region, they know the region really well, and I think um, they could do a fantastic job uh, filming the, all of the places of Alaska. They have already done some of that in, in the past, and uh, I think it would be perfect. And so that's that's how Al and Al Manilot get, get hired by, by Disney uh, to, um, to work on the project. Um, and, and again, uh, we, we, we look at that through all of the correspondence between the, the studio and, and those various entities in, in Alaska, and, and we see the whole internal reflection that, that happens at the studio, and that leads to the Disney studio sending uh, Al and Al Mamilov to, to Alaska. Now, this is where it becomes even more fascinating, because they spend, they spend a full year in Alaska, and again, not much had been written about that film year in Alaska. We, we didn't know much about what they did there, who they filmed, how they did it, and, and so on and so forth. And so, as always, what I wanted to do is I wanted to have a first-hand account of what happened there. Um, and to do that, the first step was to contact the family of, uh, of the Milans. And uh, they were very kind. They opened their archives to me. And they said, you know, DJ, we, we have a few photographs. and." Uh, we have a few pages of what appears to be an autobiography, but, but the problem is we don't have the full autobiography. We, we don't know what happened to it, so, but there are those scattered pages from it. And so I started reading those and I'm like, wow, those are really interesting. And then I started looking for the, the papers of Alan Elmanilat. I thought they might have donated those somewhere. And I, I did locate them, uh, part of them in, in the state of uh, Washington. Uh, and in the state of Washington, in one city there, I, uh, uh, through a historical uh, society, I located part of their papers. And that was actually a pretty massive collection. And one of my friends in, in, in the state of Washington helped me uh, really photograph all that they had, scanned what needed to be scanned, and so on and so forth. And that, that was really an absolute treasure trove. I mean, they, part of their diaries well, was there. Um, lots of correspondence, including lots of correspondence that isn't at the Disney archives. Uh, it was just utterly fascinating, and not not just about Seal Island, but but about their next research trips after that uh, for Beaver Valley and, and quite a few other projects that I'll cover in, in future volumes. But then there was still the subject of that lost autobiography of those random pages, and so. I, started digging even more, and, and at that point, I was looking for photographs, really, uh, and so I was contacting quite a few museums in, in Alaska that had also part of the, uh, the papers of Alan Elmanila. They, they had scattered those in, in quite a few different places, and and one of those museums said, yeah, we, we do have uh, some photographs, and on top of that, we do have additional diaries from, from the Milots. And I thought, oh, this is cool. This is really great. And, and those diaries covered precisely that, that time period um, of the year in Alaska from 1946. So I, I, I was starting to have between the correspondence and the diaries, I started to have a really, really rich uh, first-hand account of what was going on there. Uh, realized, among other things, that Elma Milot was, was pregnant when she was in Alaska in 1946. I mean, you have to realize, this is Alaska in 1946. 
Arctic and some remote places of Alaska. So really, I mean, the conditions were, of life were really, really rough. And, and to go there um, for anyone in normal circumstances was, would already be really tough. To go there as a pregnant woman, I mean, this is just unbelievable from my, my standpoint. And, and so I contacted those museums and, and they were telling me, yeah, we have photographs, we have those diaries and so on. And then I'm like, oh, and there is this last collection that I haven't looked at yet. And so I contact this other museum and I can't remember exactly where it was in Alaska, but I contact them specifically for photographs and a few other documents that I was looking for. And they come back and they said, yeah, we do have quite a few photographs that we think you're going to be interested in. We have a few uh, papers that you're going to be interested in. Oh, and by the way, we, we also have what appears to be the manuscript for an autobiography. Would you be interested in that? I'm like, oh my God, this is the last autobiography. And, and so they send that to me. And yes, it's a full book ready for publication, um, specifically focused on their year in Alaska. Uh, from start to finish. And, and so I was obviously able, thanks to that, to connect all of the dots and, and it, it makes the, the, the whole account even richer. And so this is, this is really, really fun. This is really fun. And so, so that year in Alaska, I mean, that, that was the origin of both Seal Island and, and also the first of the uh, People and Places series, uh, the Alaskan Eskimo. Uh, both came from uh, both the first of the Trail Life Adventures and the first of the People and Places series. Um, came from that research trip to, to, to Alaska. So they come back to the studio in 1946 with tons and tons and tons of footage that they have sent back to the studio. And, and the studio really doesn't know exactly what to do with that footage, how to organize it, uh, uh, what to do with it, how to shape it. They, they're really utterly puzzled by all of this. And especially the, the what may be a bit less although you have the feeling that he doesn't really know what to do with all of this yet uh, at the end of 1946, but his artists absolutely, completely are puzzled by, by all of this because it's the first time that they really work on a uh, on a project of that magnitude and, and like this. I mean, it was the only exception maybe of the uh, uh, the Amazon the Amazon Awakens. So we're at the end of 1946, what do we do with all of this? And so they, they sort of park the idea for a little while. They, they try to shape it in one way or another way and so on. But then they realize, okay, well, let, let's try and develop other concepts for what eventually would become the, the, the true life adventures. And so this is the, the fourth chapter in, in, the, in the book, which, uh, uh, which deals with the... Uh, the planned uh, true life adventures that did not make it to the screen. And so uh, this is where I finally started to understand uh, what all of those documents that I was seeing at the animation research library and that I couldn't understand when I was researching the address they pleased, what they were, how to fit into the story. Uh, and so there was a project for the, the, the story of the Nile. There was a project based on wild horses in Colorado. Um, uh, there was another project about the Colorado River. Uh, and in fact, that, that project about the Colorado River went so far in development uh, that, uh, that the Disney Studios in 1947 uh, sends Al and Al Mamilot down the Colorado to film, to shoot some film uh, for that project that they really thought they would develop and, and make into one of the, um, probably one of the true life adventures. And then they realized, well, there isn't enough action. There isn't enough uh, excitement to uh, uh, for it to work. Uh, so they would have to 
wait many years to, to really later to do something else on the Colorado, uh, much later uh, as a fiction film, uh, Ten Who Dared. Um, and, and by the end of 1947, so we're, we're one year after the research trip to Alaska, the Walt Disney Studios still doesn't really know what they're going to do with all of that footage from, from Alaska. Um, and at some point, uh, and I think if I remember the date right, it's either in March or in May 1948, Walt finally has um, an idea, a really, really great idea of how to handle all of this. He says, what if, in, instead of trying to make sense of all of that footage that, that has things about the... Uh, the Eskimos, uh, things about uh, um, uh, all of that folkloric life in the region, things about canneries, things about all sorts of stuff, industry and so on in the region. What if we focus purely on the footage of the seals that was shot in the Pribilof Island uh, by Al and El Manilat? Let's just separate that and everything else that has to do with wildlife. And let's not have any human beings in there, Let's not have anything that, that shows uh, the presence of human beings, uh, be it uh, like telephone poles or whatever, things like that. Let's focus purely on, on nature. And let's see if we can do something with that. We are in March or May 1948, which is about seven months, no, a little bit more, eight months before the release of the first True Life Adventures of Scream. So this is an insanely short amount of time. And that's when Walt has finally this idea uh, for how he's going to handle it. Um, and, and then his artists start, uh, start working uh, on it with that guidance. And, and that's how Seal Island um, is produced. And, and that's how the, the finding the first of the True Life Adventures, the one that will win an award, like many others in the series, um, an Academy Award. Um, is, is finally produced and, and, and launched in December of 1948. It's an utterly fascinating story, uh, one that's really, really rich in excitement and in, 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 in events that, frankly, I had never idea had, had occurred before researching this. Didier, you are nothing but a masterful storyteller in, in explaining all of this. And, uh, and what, I, what I love in, in listening to you talk about only the development of the documentary, but also in just your own process and creating materials is the enthusiasm is palpable. Um, it's it's very clear. And there are so many different aspects that I would love to uh, dive into because you, you gave a, a lot of opportunities for, for further inquiry. But one thing that really stands out um, in, in your, your conversation about um, Al and Alma going out to Alaska for the year was that they were they were doing tons of filming. Uh, I think you say in the book they they shoot about 20 hours worth of film. Um, it's a lot of a lot of footage and ultimately as you said they later uh, disaggregated just took all the nature uh, stuff and and that would become the, the foundation for Seal Island. You mentioned that it was a, an arduous journey for them. it was it was full of challenges, full of unknowns and one of them, uh, one of the very visceral stories was when they were trying to photograph caribou and the caribou are running toward Elma and Al is just trying to make sense of what's going on here. Could, could you just talk about their really interesting encounters with wildlife? 
Sure, absolutely. I mean, they, they are when they are in nature like that in such a such a remote region, and, and again, 1946, so very underdeveloped region at, at that time. I mean, they're risking their lives all the time, um, or uh, quite a bit of the time. Um, if anything happens to them, uh, the nearest hospital is really far away. Uh, in fact, at some points, um, and it's not just the nearest hospital, it's like uh, very basic amenities. I mean, at some point in, in her, her diary, uh, Elma, after I believe like two months uh, in a remote region of Alaska, um, they, both her and her husband, go back to Anchorage. And, and she writes um, in, in her diary, first bath in two months or something like that. Uh, and And so... And and you can you can the excitement is palpable like in in her entry it's like finally finally we're back to um, to basic amenities that that we haven't had for for quite a while and they I mean they, they spend the winter in in Alaska in in 1946 they 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 spend um, um, their time in in really remote places in very hostile environments. Um, but then again, I mean, what they what they witness is is absolutely fabulous. I mean, they uh, uh, they witness twice a mask dance uh, from from the Eskimos in the region, from from um, the indigenous people in 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 that region, and it's uh, it's a it's a dance that had not happened in I think something like. 30 years or something like that, if I remember well. Uh, why? Because the, the, the religious people, uh, the, the Christian religious people that were in the region that were uh, trying to catechize uh, the uh, uh, the indigenous people did not allow them uh, to practice their rituals. Uh, and so, um, and, and to really, uh, and did not embrace their, their culture and, and forced them not, not to, uh, uh, to to um, um, uh, practice those those uh, mask dances, and so uh, when but the fathers allow them just for that specific occasion to, to do it, uh, and so so it's a really really special occasion in in two villages, and and the Milots film that, and it's really tough to film. It's it's. Uh, very dark in there, and, and they have to to use some um, some some devices that are complex to put in place that don't work necessarily super well, and so on and so forth. And they, they film all of that, um, and and it's a really big deal. It's it's a really big deal. And then at the end of that, uh, they realize that the masks have been discarded uh, in in a, in, a, in in the trash, and so they go and see uh, uh, the head of the village, and they say, well. Would it be okay if we bought those masks from you? And and they say yes, absolutely, that's fine. Well, we're going to discard them after the dance. And so they do that. They buy those masks. They um, they take them back with them uh, to the United States uh, and or to um, mainland United States. And um, and and after a while, I think it's uh, twenty years later or twenty five years later, they they actually donated those masks to uh, to a museum in in Alaska, and they're still there. Uh, to be admired, uh, and so so they, they were doing also some uh, uh, ethnological uh, work that was really interesting. Uh, it's uh, um, yeah, I mean the the account of that trip is is really 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 fascinating, and I try to select the best uh, uh, the best aspects of their autobiography, and I'm hoping that one day we'll be able to also release the full autobiography in, in book form. 
Yeah, one thing you, you're communicating about now, and it's abundantly clear in reading the book, is your use of those primary primary forms of documentation, the original documents, the original narratives. Why do you feel like uh, that's important in being able to relate these stories that are from you now more than 70 years ago? Because you have um, you have three ways of writing history. Uh, one way of writing history is to rely solely on secondary sources and recycling what has already been written in the past, uh, but recycling it in, in a different way and, and uh, re, uh, re reorganizing the uh, the jigsaw puzzle in in some sense. And I don't find that very interesting. This is not what I like to do. Uh, it's great uh, to uh, to attract a new audience. Uh, to some subject matters, and so it, it has a validity, and, and it's um, it makes sense that that happens from time to time, but that's not my thing. This is not why I write books. The other way of, of writing uh, a, a book is uh, is to rely uh, in great part on, on, on interviews, um, and that's very important to do for a lot of historical books, um, but we also know as historians that memories um, are not the most reliable thing that exists um, uh, for different reasons. And, and one of the, the, the most obvious ones is that uh, years later, we don't necessarily remember things properly. Um, and that's that's without taking into account self-serving uh, memories and, and things like that. So that's that's the second way of writing, of writing books. And, but, but interviews are really important, sometimes to give context, sometimes to give more color and, and so on and so forth. I, I love interviews. Um, but then I know that if I want to, to get closer to the truth, then the only way of doing that is to rely on documents that were contemporary to the uh, to the events. Uh, and so those can be um, diaries, those can be uh, correspondence, those can be uh, documents like even press clippings. Um, all of that is, is really valid to understand what really happened at that time. Uh, and then interviews, uh, when they fit with that, that narrative that, that you now have and that's really accurate, then those interviews will serve to to give more context, more details, or even connect some of the some of the dots. Um, I I just like what I write uh, when I write and when I read history books. I, I just like to know that what what I'm reading is the the real true story or as close to the true story as can be. The, the other thing is, frankly, I I find that there's more life um, when you uh, when you read accounts uh, written at the first person. Uh, uh, you, you have the impression that you're taking a time machine and going back to that time period and, and that you're actually there and, and looking over the shoulders uh, of the people who are experiencing the events. And I find that really, really uh, exciting, frankly. Yeah, it, it definitely comes through in, in reading the book. And, and one thing you mentioned a few minutes ago, and I'd like to kind of bring this back into the conversations, you talk about how interesting ideas never never truly die at Disney. They, they somehow re-manifest in new ways, unexpected ways, some of the footage, as you mentioned, would be used in a different context. Um, one, of the, one of the anecdotes I really liked was Disney's interest in uh, focusing on bees and the lives of bees and how that never became uh, its own feature, but would later be used in, in future um, editions of the True Life Adventure series. I, I guess I'm, I'm interested in how you processed so many concepts that didn't quite off, get off the ground, but ultimately 
would be recycled or would find other ways of appearing, even if many years later. Well, I, I'm I'm always really interested. I mean, one of the things I'm most interested in when I research Disney history is where are the roots of some of the projects that we uh, we know and love. Um, where does those roots come from? What, what, how far back do they go? Um, and so, one of the, the examples, and I'm I'm touching on that just just very superficially in in this in this book in uh, the origins of the troll life adventures, but I'm going to explore that in a lot more details in the next volume. Is the history of music, uh, and so the history of music is one of those educational projects that stopped being discussed. Um, frankly, as early as 1940, um, as, as a concept for a sequel to, to Fantasia. Um, and, um, that's suggested by T.C. in 1940. And, and I'm not mentioning that in this book. I'm going to mention it in the next book. Um, but then, um, you have several artists, especially, uh, Sylvia Holland, uh, with another, uh, music expert called Jose Rodriguez, who, work on that project and, and then it goes to the humor and so on and so forth. And eventually, many years later, in 52, 53, that's what becomes Adventures in Music Melody and Toot Whistle Plug and Boom. Uh, but but the, uh, the the history of the evolution of that project that starts in the 1940s and that goes all the way to 1952, 1953 is, is really rich and is way, way, way more complex than anything you could you could imagine, and there are way more people involved than what you could think. Uh, and it's not not like in the early 1950s, Walt says, "Oh, why don't we do uh, two projects about music and and give that to Ward Kimball and and that goes to the screen?" No, it's it really from 1940 until 1952, 1953. So those are projects that are in different stages of development almost continuously for 12 to 13 years. Um, and, and telling that story is just extremely interesting. And, and again, when I was researching They Drew As They Pleased, one of the volumes, I think it was volume two, uh, the, the one on Sylvia Holland uh, and the one really on music, I was digging into those boxes of material for um, what was called the, the history of music. And it, it has different names uh, throughout the years. And I, and, and, and boxes for uh, Truth, Whistle, Plunk, and Boom, and Melody. And I would look at those hundreds and hundreds and almost thousands of documents, pre-production documents related to music and drawings and things. And I'm like, what on earth is all of this? All of this for Truth, Whistle, Plunk, and Boom, and Melody? What, what's going on here? What, why? And, and now that I'm finally starting to research in great depth, uh, that project a little bit for uh, the origins of the troll life adventures, but a lot more for the, the next volume. I'm like, oh, I get it. Of course, they were working on it for 12 years. So no wonder there's so much material. Uh, and, and no wonder it's so different. And no wonder it goes into so many different directions and so on and so forth. But that was, that was really, really great. And I mean, you have another one, which, which I touch upon on, uh, in, in, uh, the origins of the troll life adventures, which is, uh, the story of man. Well, what a wide subject. I mean, uh, like it's all encompassing. But then at some point, you have projects like um, uh, Donald and the Wheel and uh, and um, Steen in America that, that basically are projects that 
Hattel Woods very directly in that 1943 project, The, the Story of Man. Um, you would never think about that. Same thing with uh, Our Friend the Atom. Uh, it's the same thing. It, it has its roots in The Story of Man. Um, and again, you, you would not know that if, 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 if it weren't for research in, in, in the origins of the Trollac adventures. And so then you start seeing how uh, there is this connective tissue between what we knew um, and what we knew, and that connective tissue is all that we didn't know, and it's a lot, uh, and and it it starts making sense. I mean, again, it, we in in a lot of the stories we went from point A to point C, and you're like, okay, but what's point B? What, what happened in between? What, what, what's the story there? How did they jump from this to this? Well, now we know. Now, now we, we we really know how to jump from one point to the next. Well, it seems like that's probably such a great joy for you as an author, as a historian, as a researcher, to be able to unearth this almost missing piece, right? Like you mentioned earlier about the notion of being able to obtain the Malots, uh, the autobiography um, amidst all of your work. What a, what a fascinating process that sounds like. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I can tell you every time I find a new piece of the jigsaw puzzle, it's a joy. Uh, but when on top of that, the, the piece of the jigsaw puzzle changes completely the image that I have in front of me uh, on that in that jigsaw puzzle, then it's it's even it's even better. I mean, it's just it's it's just it's one of those great great moments, uh, uh, and it happens volume after volume, uh, research subject after research subject where. There is one piece of the jigsaw puzzle that falls into your hands, and you're like, I just cannot believe this. This changes the whole story, or this puts a completely different light. This sheds a completely different light on what I was researching until now. Now I finally get it. Now, now it makes sense. And, and it seems like, in turn, it actually influences the trajectory of your future books as well, because you mentioned how, with the They Do As They Please series, how different elements of that would spark ultimately what you're doing now. So we, without a doubt, I mean, one, one of the things that I've told quite a few people is that I never start uh, writing a book and knowing exactly what the story is going to be. Uh, I have a vague idea of what I'm, I'm trying to research, um, but then I don't know what the story is going to be. Uh, and so let, let's take one, one example. I mean, I was... Uh, here is one of the, the future projects that I'm working on. I'm while I was researching the, the origins of Walt Disney's true life adventures, um, I was thinking, okay, well, what do I do for an encore? What, what's the next volume that that has the true life adventures as, as one of its uh, uh, subject matters? And uh, when I was uh, conducting that research, I uh, stumbled upon a press release from Walt from 1952, um, right at the time when they were releasing, uh, I think, the, the Olympic Elk, if I'm not mistaken, the, the third of the Trollife Adventures. And what Walt says in one paragraph of that press release just made me stop in my tracks and realize, oh my, I know exactly now what the next volume is going to be. And what Walt was saying is, he says, well, not only are we working on further installments of what we're thinking of as adventures in nature, uh, which are the true life adventures, but we're also thinking about developing some parallel um, series. Uh, one is going to be adventures in music, 
One is going to be Adventures in History, uh, with the first installment being Ben and Me. And one of, one of them is going to be uh, Adventures in Economics. So Adventure in Economics, I don't think, went really anywhere. But the other two were like, oh, I know exactly what my next volume is going to be. And so the next volume is Walt Disney's Adventures in Music, History, and Nature. Uh, and, and there, what I'm going to be doing is the first chapter is going to focus on that famous project that I was describing earlier, um, the origins of Toot Whistle, Plunk and Boom, and Adventures in Music in Melody, which is the full title of Melody. And now we really understand why Adventures in Music, uh, because Walt was thinking about it as a full series and not just the, the one of shorts. Uh, and so there's a whole chapter that really researches the, the origin of those two projects from the 1940s and 1952-53, with tremendous amount of artwork, illustrations, correspondence, stories that have never been told before. The uh, the second chapter uh, is going to be what did Walt have in mind when he was thinking about adventures in history? And where does that idea come from? Um, and it's both history, frankly, and folklore, American folklore. And there is a whole story about project that he was uh, researching and thinking about, especially in 1946, um, which was a, a project which was going to be a package feature like Melody Time or like Make My Music, but all about American folklore. Um, and, and this is a story that has really never been told properly before. So there, there's a whole story there and, and, and then how it carries on and, and all the way until uh, ben and me in, in 1952. Um, and, and then finally, uh, the third chapter is, and the third and fourth chapter, chapters are going to be about uh, the next installments of the Troll Life Adventures, so uh, Beaver Valley, and uh, how El, Al and El Manilot uh, are sent to Montana and a few other places to research Beaver Valley. Uh, and, and what happens next, which is the Olympic elk and how that comes about. And what's really interesting is that I discovered that this is actually linked to the Milots. Although it wasn't them filming that, there is a direct link to the Milots. And you'll have to read the, the, the book to, uh, to see what the link is. Uh, but it's the first time that it's going to be revealed. And so it's, it's, it's really, really fun. Uh, and so that's the next, that's the next volume. Well, um, and that's great. What a good preview. Um, I feel like I'm on the edge of my seat. And I, you know, I, I, I was thinking about just the impact of, of the series, the True Life Adventure series in particular. Um, one thing that stands out is that, as you say early on in, in the book, that this series revolutionized the art of nature cinematography. It was groundbreaking. And it seems like that's what Disney the, the history of the Walt Disney Company has represented across so many different industries and media is the notion of revolutionizing what once was. So I guess I'm wondering in you reflecting on your process for developing this first volume and, and ultimately exploring uh, uh, more true life adventures uh, associated with the series, how, how do you feel like the Walt Disney Company um, kind of transformed this notion of, of capturing nature footage and and really in particular in, in Technicolor. So, I mean, in the you know, late 1940s, many folks had not necessarily seen these remote places of these animals at all, let alone in color. 
Well, I mean, you, you said most of it already, but it, it just, they made it really exciting. They made it relatable, relatable. They made it easy to understand. Um, and they just made it fun. And so, uh, um, and, and obviously, uh, they showed it in cinemas, uh, in front of mainstream movies. Uh, and so all of that, uh, really was, uh, the conjunction of all of those factors was really the, the, the revolution uh, when it comes to the, to the true life adventures. Um, uh, but, but, but again, I mean, the whole, the whole filming process, the whole, the, all of the adventures of, of the artists who were working on that, that's, that's also what, what really in itself fascinates me, uh, uh, in parallel to, to really the, the, the final films themselves. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. And and I guess to start to to wrap up a little bit, I, I suppose we've been talking a lot about the origins of Walt Disney's True Life Adventures. How can folks actually get themselves a copy of the book? And when? Sure. So they will uh, be able starting, I believe, next week, um, uh, which is the, the week of uh, September uh, 26. Uh, they should be able to get a copy first via Stuart and Books, that's Stuart and G Books. Uh, and then uh, they will, they should be able to uh, also obtain a copy uh, soon after that via Amazon, uh, very simply. And the fulfillment is done also by Stuart and Books. So I would, I would recommend uh, that people go directly to Stuart and Books uh, to get their, their copy. And again, the, 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 the monograph should be up on his, uh, on his site uh, starting next week, if all goes well. We finally received all of the copies that were awaiting. So uh, uh, whereas uh, we sold out on the advanced copies at D23 Expo, we now have the bulk of the copies that just arrived by ship uh, last week. So we're, we're really excited. I was gonna say, after so many years in development, what, what it must be like for you to finally see people actually be being able to hold the product that you've just been investing so much time in. That, that's right, Brett, especially when you consider that uh, the reason why it's only released now is that there was the pandemic in the middle and that slowed things down tremendously. The, the good news is I think that for the, the next books that I'm working on at the moment, the next monographs, um, things are going to go a lot faster. Uh, and, and in fact, I mean, there, there's already one that's at layout phase. Um, and, and that one is going to be about Walt Disney's trip to Latin America in 1941. This is going to be um, a monograph written in collaboration with uh, Ted Thomas, the son of uh, Frank Thomas, who was part of that trip, and J.B. Kaufman, who already wrote a book uh, on the subject. And the three of us have pulled our resources together uh, to really write something very different, which is a day-by-day -day account of the 1941 trip, illustrated by 240 photographs. Uh, and so you're, you're literally there with Walton and Rupo and following them, following them country by country and meeting by meeting um, and, and, and seeing exactly what they did, what they experienced and so on. And we tapped into various correspondence and so on and so forth. And so it, it makes it really, really exciting. Um, and, and then on top of that, I'm, I'm also working right now on, uh, with, um, a friend and, and colleague called Libby Spatz, um, who works for Disney. And we're working on two volumes, uh, about Mickey Mouse in the 1930s on stage and on radio. And this is going to be a revolution in the way we, uh, 
we look at Nicky. Um, he, we knew he was famous in the 1930s. I never in a million years realized how famous he was and how ubiquitous he was. He was everywhere in the 1930s, uh, on the stage, on stage shows in a lot of places, also in marionette shows, in parades, in Christmas decorations, all around the country uh, with these Christmas decorations that was just, just absolutely stunning, like uh, um, animated Christmas displays and so on. Uh, he was on radio, not just in the US, but also in the UK and in Italy and, and a few other places. Um, it is just an absolutely incredible story that has never been told before. And, and again, we've tapped into resources that no one even knew existed. Uh, and so that, that's going to be fun. Uh, and there are a few other projects, like I'm, I'm working in parallel with uh, Jim Holyfield uh, on uh, on a monograph about uh, the uh, the making of Darby O'Gill and the Little People, uh, also, uh, and a few more things that that are still uh, that are still confidential. But this this is going to be very very fun. And, and obviously, this is just the project I'm working on. Uh, this is all part of a series of monographs released by the Hyperion Historical Alliance. And that in that series of monographs, there are quite a few things that I'm not working on, but others are working on. Thanks for me. Um, we have um, Kevin and Jody and Aaron Wilcott uh, working on the making of Swiss Family Robinson. And, and they're very close to having something uh, uh, that can go to layout. Um, we have uh, Tom Morris working on a series of four monographs on the origins of Walt Disney Imagineering and on the early days of Walt Disney Imagineering. Um, we have uh, Todd James Pierce and Joe Campana working on Disneyland 59 and, and more and more. Uh, this is extremely rich and, and we're really going to explore aspects of Disney history that have not been very much explored before, if at all. Uh, and, and obviously with those monographs that are heavily illustrated, uh, hardcover, uh, beautiful, beautiful publications uh, that 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 uh, we we hope really add a lot to uh, the way we understand Disney history. Wow, that's that's incredibly rich. Uh, I, I had heard about through your through your website as far as the Mickey Mouse uh, on stage and in the radio, and it's fascinating to hear from you because, from my perspective, it seems like my gosh, so much has been written about Mickey Mouse, but you've been able to say there's so much. That, that has been undiscovered that we're just ready to, to share with the world is just uh, intriguing to say the least uh, among all those other I mean, projects. I'll just add, I literally just add one thing on this, which is uh, when I started that project with Libby, we thought, okay, this is going to be just one volume. Uh, there's a lot to be told, a lot we didn't know, but this is going to be one volume. And then the more uh, we were conducting our research, the more we're like, this is never ever going to fit into one volume. Uh, and, and we're talking about 95% of the text is based on untapped material and on stories we have not heard before. And I would say that the same amount of illustrations, at least 95, 96, 97% are illustrations that we have never seen before. I mean, if I just take the parades, um, the parades I was, I found, I don't know how many parades in the United States uh, that were official or semi-official uh, with, with Mickey floats uh, that we had never, ever seen before. In fact, the negatives in a lot of cases of those photographs, which were not at the Disney archives in outside archives, had not even been scanned before. 
So we got them scanned for the very first time. And so they're going to appear in book form. And in fact, they're going to appear uh, in any shape or form for the very first time uh, in those in those monographs. I mean, and, and again, this is just the, the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more. That's that's so awesome to hear. I, I can't remember who I've had on the podcast before, a fellow author in the same company as you. And and what they were saying and what you're illustrating too is just the the excitement that comes from being able to release imagery, release stories that had really never been shared. That, that it seems like that's the the greatest gift that an author can can bring to the world. Yes, because the history of Disney is so rich. Uh, and it's so frustrating when it's when when you just get access to recycled and recycled material. You, you want to break new ground. You want to, uh, uh, to to tell people how things really happen. You want to uh, to show things that have not been seen before. Just because again, you're aware that there is so much more uh, behind the scenes that that can be shared and should be shared as long as it's done in context and honestly and and uh, and with great accuracy. And so that's what we thrive for. Uh, especially through the Hyperion Historical Alliance. Absolutely. Well, I I've said before, there's probably never been a better time to be a consumer of the great content that is being released about Disney history through books, through monographs, through all these different entities. And, and you're certainly uh, a major player in, in the space. So thank you again, Didier, for coming on the podcast for, for writing these books that are enabling us to glimpse into parts of Disney that we hadn't known existed or hadn't been uh, captured and, and and all these continued products that, that will be on our shelves likely in the, in the coming years as well. Thank you so much, Brad. It's really my pleasure. And many thanks go out to Didier Yes for joining me on Notably Disney. He is absolutely delightful, very kind and generous and also, very importantly, uh, a masterful storyteller. It is an incredible book. I, I thoroughly enjoyed reading through these first-person accounts, the photographs that he was able to pull out, uh, storyboards that you'll see scattered throughout the book, and, and so much more. It is a wonderful monograph, some, something that I think would be a unique uh, a unique title in your Disney collection. Certainly we haven't seen anything on the True Life Adventure series and uh, as you heard uh, he's a very busy bee himself with many projects at different stages of development and we'll all be able to take advantage of those releases um, over the coming years. So much in store and uh, thank you again Didier. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports. And be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett. And thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.